The Garden Question is a podcast for people that love designing, building, and growing smarter gardens that work. Listen in as we talk with successful garden designers, builders, and growers, discovering their stories along with how they think, work, and grow. This is your next step in creating a beautiful, year-round, environmentally connected, low-maintenance, and healthy, thriving outdoor space. It doesn't matter if you're a beginner or an expert, there will always be something inspiring when you listen to the Garden Question podcast. Hello, I'm your host, Craig McManus. Heidi Highland has been diligently leading and artfully expanding her landscape garden company, Heidi's Lifestyle Gardens, as the CEO, that's Chief Experience Officer, since 1979. With the help of her expert team, they create award-winning ecoscapes and nourishing encounters with nature for their customers. Her team brings holistic consultations, design, installation, and site management to every project. They are achieving innovative landscape designs and earth-connected garden management by applying water-wise approaches and slow food sustainability practices. After graduating from the Constance Spry Flower School in England, Heidi continued her education by becoming a certified professional through the Minnesota Nursery and Landscape Association. She grew in the organization and eventually served as president. Heidi holds a certificate in horticultural therapy through Colorado State University, has her PDC or permaculture design, and is a professional master gardener. In the spring of 2016, the company grew by acquiring a retail garden center and growing nursery on a five-acre campus in the western suburbs of the Twin Cities. This is the home and immersive experience of Heidi's Grow House. Heidi's home gardens have received awards from the Perennial Plant Association and recognition from the Garden Club of America. Her outdoor spaces and philosophy have been highlighted in many magazines, including Better Homes and Garden, Horticulture, and Northern Green. For a decade, Heidi presented monthly segments on the local Minnesota NBC affiliate KARE 11's Earth Care series. She was recently inducted into the Minnesota Nursery and Landscape Association Hall of Fame for making a difference in the green industry. Heidi is happily married, has three adult kids, three grandkids, a golden retriever named Dandelion, and a rescue cat named Clover. This is episode 131, Water, Food, Healing, The Transformative Power of Gardening with Heidi Highland. Heidi, would you help us to understand the difference between fine gardening and landscaping? Ah, that's such a good question, Craig. Fine gardening services, also high-touch horticulture, is managing herbaceous plant materials, from annuals and tropicals and herbs and edibles to the perennials, maybe even the woodies and small fruit trees. It's focusing on soil management and watering. It's rejuvenative pruning, not simply shearing. It's potentially compost tea instead of what we affectionately call blue juice. That's a chemical application to the uh, plants. It's understanding the needs of the plants and it's seasonal switch out of containers. We do a lot of that. In Minnesota, I, I know you're in a different state, Craig, so... You might not do it the same way Minnesotans do, but 
We have five seasons up here in Minnesota, five seasons of, of seasonal switchouts for the containers anyway. We all know spring, summer, fall, and winter. But then what we've affectionately coined the fifth season is the season in between your spruce tips, your winter greens. Your spruce tips are deader than a doornail, but it's too soon for pansy pots because we might get another frost. So for us, the fifth season is just sticks and stems and pods, nothing living but drieds in your front door containers. Fine gardening is a way to keep people in um, close connection to their plants. For some of our clients, we harvest their vegetables or cut their flowers and then bring them into their homes. It's much more kind of an interactive and an ongoing service for us here in Minnesota from April until Thanksgiving. Then the landscaping services is probably something that more people are familiar with, which is design install is what my company is, or design build, which many firms are. Design build would mean that you're doing more construction, whether that's pools and pergolas and decks and patios and knee walls. That's design build. Potentially the drawings for those need to be engineered or construction drawings differently than design install is probably more greenscaping, if you will. It's installing the softscape, not the hardscape. So the design build works much more in harmony with our fine gardening services. Those are two of our revenue streams for my company. Then the third revenue stream is the grow house, the retail garden center that we just bought seven years ago, an existing five and a half acre campus. But I've been doing the fine gardening services since I was 17, 1979. Anyway, I, I'm just so blessed that I've fallen into this industry and I get to share stories with people like you and your community. How do you balance ornamental gardening and sustainable gardening? I think it can be seamlessly weaved throughout. I like to infuse those sustainable or regenerative approaches always. We have for decades prior our customers asking for it or prior the world understanding where the environment is today and that it's a need. I don't think there's uh, one or the other, ornamental or sustainable. I believe it's an and. One of the ways that we do it is we plant strawberries as a ground cover or maybe blueberries as a hedge. Asparagus rivals the look of any perennial grass I've ever seen. You can have functional and aesthetic gardens all at the same time. I have a certificate, certificate in permaculture design, and that would be a way to have a closed loop of how you live on your land. We could all cons consider to live lightly on our land and more thoughtfully, whether that's waste is fuel. So we, we all know that we're, we love compost these days. Maybe it's how you create your own compost, utilize your own compost. You don't have to outsource it and have it delivered into you. You're creating your own compost by how you're living on your footprint. So that's something that more and more people are doing these days. Another way that we take it a little bit further is we do something that we call chop and drop. Potentially when you're trimming back the perennials that you want to trim back or any kind of cutting for that matter, you simply chop it where it is and drop it where it is. Let it decompose right there where you need the food instead of removing those greens debris to the back 40 of your property 
letting it sit there for some time, and then hauling it back in. I'm a busy gardener. I'm not a lazy gardener. I'm a busy gardener. And I don't always have time to have all those footsteps back and forth. Chop and drop is a closed loop that's easier. And then you get the job done. I think so many times we compete these days with our attention of, of so many different things. And you only might have so much time to garden. Thinking of smart gardening, and I'm 62 now, Craig, so how I garden today is different than how I gardened when I was 42. It's better on my body, potentially, to do um, some of these practices differently. A permaculture principle, one of them would be observe and interact. I continue to do that to my own uh, behaviors. Can I really garden the way that I used to 20 years ago? I can't. I don't want to either. Continuing to develop your own regenerative or sustainable practices so that you can still engage in the practice of gardening is key because we need to heal the planet one garden at a time. And potentially it starts with your own garden healing you literally and figuratively. Now, I had the opportunity to visit your personal garden this past August and your garden appears to be working very hard and functioning on many different levels. Would you talk about that function and how it's working? Yeah. I think the biggest overarching thing for me, um, while I love the foods in, in the garden, I focus on three elements, Craig, water, food, and healing. You might see the pear trees at the front door framing an archway to get up to our front door. I grow melons and other cucurbits right on the front driveway. So there's foods infused throughout. I try to push sorrel and lovage into a, a shadier section. If you're growing foods that don't have to produce a fruit, you can do leafy greens in a little bit less light. So I'm always experimenting with what can I grow in the shade for food? One of the arbors that you walk underneath to the backyard has grapes growing on it. So the foods are infused throughout. The other function for water is I have quote-unquote rain gardens throughout. The primary rain garden is permeable paver driveway that captures the water not only from the sky as it lands on the hardscape, but it also, as it comes down off the roof, is channeled into the gutters and then into a rain chain that dead ends into a French drain that feeds into the permeable system. That was engineered by folks to ensure that it would handle a 100-year flood. Now we're understanding even that we're at the 300-year flood challenges. So potentially my quote-unquote rain garden in my permeable system is quote-unquote failing. A rain garden fails if it doesn't hold all the water that comes down from the sky. I think we continue to learn and observe and interact on how our own home gardens function to keep water on the land. The true meaning of a rain garden is to keep water on your land. There's a closed loop, right? A rain garden also slows the flow of the water or potentially cleans the water and infiltrates, regenerates the aquifer. Not all rain gardens achieve all of those functions or all in the same way, but those are certainly goals that we can think about our landscapes with, and I, I think that's critically important. 
we're allowed to capture our water from the sky here in Minnesota. I've heard that in other states, Colorado, for example, it's illegal to capture the water from the sky. It's not yours to take. Isn't that going to be interesting as the worldwide water wars continue? But for today's purposes, I like to capture and reuse the water. I do that on my home landscape. We also do that at the grow house. We've got a big cistern that we utilize out there to replenish our shrub collection. We don't use those waters because we're not quite sure what's coming off of the roof, if you will, into the cistern, and that we should really irrigate our tender annuals or our seedlings with that potentially gray water or acid rain, if you will. But you can repurpose. We can be more creative with it. I think gardeners in general are a creative type. We have a unique opportunity to teach each other more about how to live lightly on the land. And the healing component to me, Craig, is really that people-plant connection. I have a memorial tree that was given to me by my team when my dad died. I love that Amarmachii, that choke cherry. Maybe the connection is an Edelweiss. That was my dad's favorite flower. And while it's hard to grow here in Minnesota, it doesn't really like our clay soils or all of our humidity. It grows better on a rocky mountaintop in the Austrian Alps. But I found a little microclimate where it thrives for me. Every time the Edelweiss is in bloom, I cut a bouquet of it and I bring it over to my 92-year-old mom and she gets to think of dad. That healing component is really important. And I, I think we don't think about that often enough as a people's or as an industry where we can use uh, Mother Earth to connect us back to our true core. Water, food, and healing are three themes that play out throughout my own personal landscape. Yeah, I like the way that your rain gardens were disguised because I never really even saw them, but I knew they were there. You just did a good job blending it in with the rest of the garden. How did you do that? Yeah, thank you for recognizing that. I worry as a professional in the industry that rain gardens have gotten a bad rap because it's a design issue versus that the rain garden isn't functioning. It's that somebody has put a ditch out in the front yard and it's this depression that they put in a random selection of natives in it, maybe two shrubs. It looks awful. And I don't want one of those in my landscape. So you can have a depression or a swale or lead water, but then ensure that when we install the plants, you think about it thoughtfully in the same way you would any of your other gardens. Maybe you install it with a broad brush stroke of natives, or maybe non-natives. Maybe they're pollinator plants, or not everything in a rain garden has to be moisture-loving. On the high side of that depression, you might have to put in something drought-tolerant. So it's a design issue that we could plant more of one variety together to make a grander statement. In days of old, people used to like cottage gardens. And today, I think we move so fast and there's so much going on, we would like a little bit of a cleaner look, a little bit more of a mass appeal. It, it helps our busy lives have some sort of semblance of calm when we see this kind of mass planting of one thing. For those gardeners who are just learning how to garden, it's easier to install three, five, or seven of one species together. 
when weeds pop up in between those plants, it's more understood that, oh, that must be a weed because it doesn't look like the rest of them. I think simplifying our design styles help us experience them as well as disguise them in a rain garden. Some of the other rain gardens I had on our property are just, it's a little bit of an elevation. We're on a little lake and I don't want the water to flow into that lake and bring any toxins into that lake. I don't put many toxins on my property, but I used to before I knew better. I had all sorts of phosphorus or herbicides and things like that. You want the earth to clean those waters. How do I keep that flow on the property? Might be just to divert it with a little bit of a swale into an existing garden. And maybe it dead ends there or it pools there. Then if it overflows out of that pool, then create another depression or area where it slows that flow. It's fun to think of the design with that in mind. But no, you don't necessarily see it unless it's pointed out. I think that's a good thing because I think rain gardens have gotten a bad rap. Since we're on the subject of rain, I noticed you had rain chains. Why is that preferable? I love our rain chains. We've got one in the front of the house and one in the back of the house. The one in the front of the house goes to that permeable system I was just referring to. It doesn't conserve water in and of itself. But it does keep us in appreciation of water. You see how much comes down in one storm event on a rain chain. If it's hidden behind a downspout, you don't really have any concept. But when you see it up close and personal, frequently, you are amazed by the power of nature and the responsibility that we have to manage this resource. It's fun to watch. Uh, I always look forward to it. Some rain chains even have bells or something on it, or they're spinners, and so they move. Mine doesn't happen to be that. Mine is just copper loops. What it does in the wintertime, Craig, is it freezes up into ice. Before it freezes, I put holiday lights in it, either in white or in green or in blue. It depends on my mood that year. Then it freezes up with this night lighting in it. So I've got a really cool ice sculpture all winter long in my rain chain. And then in the spring, as it starts to melt, you can see the water moving down those loops as the spring wakens up. It just sort of keeps you in connection to nature. If you don't have a chance to go to the woods, try to bring those experiences right to your window even. If you don't have a chance to go outside, look out your window. What are you seeing right from the window? I think to try to engage that way is critically important. Certainly for us here in Minnesota, because we don't always get outside all winter long. It might be too cold. Now, aren't you in uh, Georgia? I am. Yeah, so you might get outside all year round. Sometimes in Minnesota, we have to pick and choose when we go outside. Anyway, my rain chain connects me in all seasons. Yeah, there were different times I was finding myself in Minnesota. I said, now, how high does the snow really get on that structure there? Or is it totally covered up? It's just, I was trying to imagine being my first time there, what actually really happened. Yeah, it's pretty amazing. We had a pretty snow field last year. I forget how many inches, but 
more than we wanted. With a nursery and a garden center, you can't let it pile up too high on those hoop houses. We did a lot of plowing last year. The only maybe saving grace is that it does potentially replenish the aquifer, but you need a lot of snow to really make uh, a difference. It's fun to have the snow. It's fun to have the ice. We embrace all seasons here. Yeah, and it's not fun when your hoop house collapses. No, you don't want that. You try to avoid that. But it's good insulation for the plants. If we talk about gardening of old and gardening today, I've learned a lot over the years. Years ago, Craig, we used to, in the fall, cut down all of our perennials to the quick, haul the debris off-site, bring in straw to lay on your garden beds to protect those tender perennials and potentially bulbs that you installed in case we didn't have enough snow cover in the winter. The reason that you want your garden beds up here covered in the winter is not to keep them from not freezing, but they freeze solid, and then that's when you put on the straw or the hay, the marsh hay. You want them to stay frozen in February because lots of times the sun will come out for three or five days, and now those plants start to warm up and the ground on the top starts to thaw enough that things will start to push through. We're confident that it's going to get really cold again. And when those cold temps come back in at the end of February or March, maybe you've killed off those plant materials. Many bulbs have acclimated so they don't get killed, but many of the perennials do. So the idea of that winter mulch is to keep everything frozen. But today's practices are much more regenerative in that we know that you want to leave that debris up, not only for winter interest, but for habitat and shelter and potentially seeds for the birds. Everybody, I think, knows now that the bees winter in those hollow cavities of the stems of some of the perennials. Not all perennials have hollow cavities, but many do. They not only overwinter in them, they oversummer in them. So you should leave up that debris 18 to 24 inches. Now we leave everything up including the leaf litter, remains on the garden because if we've talked about composting in place and the chop and drop, nature has figured out much better than us how to leave that in place. Then it decomposes right there. I got to say, it's certainly a lot cheaper to haul away any debris in the spring if you choose to because it's withered away so much. It's not wet anymore. There's very little to haul away in the spring if you choose to leave things up. The only thing that we're concerned about leaving debris over the winter is if there's something that's going to harbor insects or diseases. You've got to watch Mm -hmm. fungus diseases and things like that. There are certain areas that maybe you manage a little bit more cleanly, or we'll have some clients, some of our fine gardening clients, say, clean up the front door completely. As my guests come to the front door, I want it to look clean and tidy, but the back 40, let it go wild and regenerative. Again, it's an and. It doesn't have to be either clean or no messy. Maybe it's a both. I think people like diversity, so they they like to be able to choose. Those are some of the practices that we do in our fine gardening division. Do you think the perception of what is beautiful in the garden has changed over the years? Yes. What is beautiful in the garden has changed over the years. If there's a silver lining to COVID, Craig... I'll try to fan that flame that the people-plant connection has grown stronger and has become more important. Maybe I should say again. What's old is new again. 
while something that you and I and others have known for years, more are coming to today. That's a good thing. Whether it's COVID or just people are feeling that nature heals them and coming back to it. More people are in appreciation of that. And I'm very grateful to that. I think the beautifulness is people are recognizing that it's okay to have that diversity. I know some cities have laws that you have to maintain your lot a certain way so that your neighbors think it looks okay. How bizarre is that, that cities are getting in the way of design aesthetics? I, I don't agree with that, but I think more and more people are understanding if you garden in a native naturalistic approach, that might not be my style, but what can I learn from that? We can meet over the garden fence and adopt practices from one another. So I think in this day and age of diversity, more and more people are recognizing that gardening approaches are one of those. Some people love houseplants and live in an apartment and don't know anything about landscape. Okay, great. So you know how to grow houseplants. Marvelous. Let's talk about that. You can teach me about houseplants. I don't really know that much about houseplants because I like to take my winters off. I garden enough outside all summer long that when winter comes, I don't want a lot to do inside anymore. I overwinter a few things, but I'm not one that's ever going to houseplant a lot. Okay, that's all right. We don't need to make people wrong for their differences. I think the world understands that today, for sure. I saw a photo in the last few days, and I was thinking this must be the before photo before they actually do the landscaping. But I was totally wrong. It had won a big award for the natural landscaping, and I just thought, man, where's your head at? I still am not there all the time with uh, what we're considering new beauty in the garden. I'm getting there, but I was shocked that I was thinking that and then found out what it really was. Yeah, you bring up a great point, Craig, and I think you're not alone. I think that's the reality as well. I'll make an assumption. You're in your 60s as well. You and I, maybe 50s. Did I just insult you? Are you in your 50s? Oh, thank you for saying that. I'm actually 68. Okay, all right. <laughs> so I think people in their sixth decade might be, it's a generational thing, I think, right? And, and you and I might have a, a certain more similar belief, but the next generation, they're not even questioning that. It, it, it's obvious to them that you should collect your kitchen debris and compost. They've grown up that way. I think lots of times we have an opportunity for our generation to meet the next generation of decision makers and ensure that we inform them with our indigenous wisdom. Then they get to take it forward into the new world the way that they wish. Yeah, there's a lot of different ways to do it. For me, too, I think sometimes there's native purists out there that really stand firm on, you have to have all natives. I think that's just a judgment potentially then and makes me feel bad if I don't have all natives in my gardens. I've got many natives, but I also have many native R's, which is a cultivar of a native. So I can have the native Minarda in my garden, which in my opinion is tall, a, a ugly, blurply color. It's not very strong coloring. It, it tends to lodge or tip over. It, it tends to get powdery mildew. In, in my opinion, in my cultivated gardens, the, the native Minarda in uh, its native 
habitat might be gorgeous, but to try to put it into my cultivated garden soils that maybe get irrigated a little bit more than a native patch might, it doesn't perform the same way. I would rather have a cultivar of that native monarda or bee balm, as it's affectionately called, its common name. I would rather have the short, stout, bright red one that's been hybridized to not get powdery mildew. It attracts a lot of pollinators as well. Does it attract all of them the same way? I don't know. Probably not. Doug Tallamy, who's written many books about native Lepidoptera and how many species of native oaks we need to keep all of the Lepidoptera going, it's fascinating. But we can't all do everything everywhere. To put the judgment on one another that you better or you're wrong doesn't help any of us move forward. It, when we all started to do light bulbs in our houses, they said, just change to one good new light bulb at a time. Just one new LED at a time. You don't have to do your whole house. I think it's the same way with a garden. You don't have to have all natives everywhere, always. Just start or learn. It goes back to that observe and interact again. What works for me might not work for you, Craig. And that's okay. I, I think we have an opportunity to live and grow and learn together. Sometimes I think that we take some of this a little too seriously. I think God has a sense of humor. And I think we're supposed to be a little bit lighter about our gardening approaches. And when it gets so political, oh my gosh, we've taken the fun out of it. I agree. I agree. What has been your evolution in your garden? Oh, some of my evolution in my garden is it's always evolving. I like to say that gardening is the slowest moving performance art. It's always evolving. It's always changing. I cut new garden beds all the time. I've lived in this home over 20 years now, and there weren't many gardens when I first started. How it began was I took slips of perennials from the home where I had moved, and I brought them with me. That's how gardening began in the United States. People brought their perennials across the pond. Now we know, Craig, that you got to be careful about moving things because you can bring jumping worms with you or other diseases and insects. We've got to be careful about moving plants these days. My garden started with slips from my former gardens, and those were from slips from my mother's garden. I think that that's so important to have that legacy, have those roots. My great-grandmother had gardens on the East Coast. She lived in New Jersey. Her gardens, over 100 years ago, were designed by the first female landscape architect in the nation, Ellen Biddle Shipman. Books that are written up about Ellen, Granny Franks' gardens are in those books. I firmly believe that that's my legacy, and I was intended to fall into this as a profession. I couldn't have picked it if I tried. I think it was really a God touch that I began where I did. I'm very grateful for that because we all are talking a lot about the environment these days. It's a wonderful profession to be in. The rest of my background is I'm past president of the Minnesota Nursery and Landscape Association, it's only third female president in its over 90-year history. Our profession is one of those where there's a lot of women. I'm really excited about we are maybe not the minority in this profession. We certainly in garden centers, 
females are the majority. And I think our nurturing nature has an ability to do this profession and care for the earth differently than it's been done in the past. Hopefully we can share information with the next generation of leaders to make a difference of how to live lightly on the land. I think they're discovering it. I think that, like you said earlier, they're grasping that other way to look at things and what we did. They are. They definitely are. And I think they're very much into their foods. There's so many, I mean, food deserts. That the terminology around that, Craig, when you and I were young, that wasn't a, a known description. But now everybody kind of talks about food deserts. Oh, wow, what's that? So more and more people are growing your own. Certainly cannabis just became legal in Minnesota. So a lot of people are growing your own like that control, responsibility of knowing where their foods or their medicine comes from. That's a good thing, right? Because I believe in pharmacy, F-A-R-M not with a pH, but pharmacy can really help heal us. If you grow some of your own vegetables in good, healthy soils, and it's fresher because the landscape to table movement, it took a matter of minutes to get to your plate versus days. It's just much better for us. So hopefully we can create a healthier community that doesn't have as much, my belief is neurodiversion and so many of these diseases can be attributed back to either what's in our water supply or the foods that we're ingesting. And to help heal us, we need to be growing our own. The next generation really likes to grow their own food, grow their own weed. That's, I think, going to be a lot uh, bigger focus, making sure that they have healthy soils to do. I think we're going to not only run out of water, but we're going to run out of soil. We've got to figure out how to grow things hydroponically, aeroponically, aquaponically, without soils. And that's one way. It doesn't have to be the only way, but it, it could be an option for us. It, it speaks to the diversity. We need to employ all of these different practices to sustain us into the future. I've read where you say that you like to design in brush strokes. What do you mean by that? Broad brush strokes to me just means a wide swath, an organic splash of different herbaceous materials, whether it's annuals or perennials or the woodies. I also say to Craig that when you garden, you're using God's crayons. And in my opinion, you can't go wrong. What knocks my socks off might not work for you. So to try to work in concert with our clients' needs and get their needs met, and as a designer to try to infuse our um, horticultural knowledge with their design aesthetic can be a challenge sometimes, but it's really um, super fun to do. And I've been lucky enough to be in, in the fine gardening services and landscape design for over 40 years with a really lovely and loyal clientele here in the western suburbs of the Twin Cities, an area called uh, Lake Minnetonka. It's just been a really marvelous career for me. After doing it for so many years, finding a location to operate your company out of tends to be one of the biggest challenges for anybody in the service industry. Your land costs prohibited, if nothing else, because you can't operate a, yeah. a design yeah. build company or a, a fine gardening company or any type of company on just little slivers of land, or at least no, not economically. That's 
That's right. And those little slivers of land that are economically available are usually within sort of those industrial complexes where you can have a garage door and some tarmac, but you don't have access to outside water. You can't bring back debris there. There's no place to keep any plant inventory. You need to make the leap to a bigger platform. I had slowly made efforts in this direction and was on a one-acre parcel. All of a sudden, this five-and-a-half-acre existing garden center and nursery became available two blocks from where I had operated. I couldn't believe my luck that I negotiated with this family that had owned it for 40 years. We are now the lucky recipients of all of their hard work and taking it into its next regeneration. We are registered, the grow house is registered as a farm with the USDA, and that's intentional so that I can lean on those USDA grants. We put up a high tunnel with one of those grants. They were developed at the University of Minnesota Morris, and they are a way to grow crop in the ground in shoulder seasons. Let's say I could plant my tomatoes in March inside this hoop house, this high tunnel, whereas before I probably couldn't plant them until the end of May. It's heated inside the ground here, so I plant in the ground early, and then I can harvest all the way till Thanksgiving, whereas before the frost would have gotten my crop and I couldn't have grown it that long. We call those shoulder seasons here in the north. It's a way to grow crop in ground in shoulder seasons in these high tunnels. High for a couple of reasons. High because you can uh, drive equipment through it. High also so that it doesn't get so hot in the heat of the summer because that could bake your crop. The, The other benefit of having those fruit, tomatoes and melons and things inside a hoop house in our seasons here in the north is because we have so much humidity that you can control how much water some of those plants get because maybe they get too much. You can put drip tape and things in. We have a high tunnel on our garden center campus. The garden center descriptor means that we sell to the customer. We're also a nursery. That means that we grow our own product as well. We grow 75% of our herbaceous plant materials. We call our footprint a campus because we believe in not only educating the consumer, but educating ourselves. I employ about 50 people, roughly 25 people in the field going out to do the services of fine gardening and landscape, and then about 25 people on the, the garden center and nursery campus. And we're a diverse group of souls who all have various knowledge. We just hired somebody who has a master's in soil science. We make our own compost tea. There's folks that know much more about that than they do about maybe design. Other people know something about merchandising and marketing. And we all are better together. Uh, Because of that diversity, I think we're a much stronger unit. We've got many different experiential opportunities on the campus to help guide us as a team and the community. And we've got what we call an edible lab. In that, we showcase ways to grow plant materials for medicine or food in an aesthetic way. 
to provide inspiration for our consumer. Then we have signage on those plants to talk about, oh, rose hips, they're ornamental, but look what you could do with them as well. Oh, did you know barberry had medicinal qualities? I certainly didn't until we created this edible lab and we're trying to fill it up with plants. I'm like, oh my gosh, what can you do with barberry? It's a marvelous way to just touch and feel. I affectionately call it scratch and sniff because I think the more we do touch and play and feel with plants and eat them and learn about them together, the more we'll want to experience them ourselves. What's the best gardening advice you've ever been given and still use today? The best gardening advice that I've been given and still use today is that we share our intellectual property. It is fair share. We don't need to hold on to that information or maybe necessarily charge for it. I believe in free source. When I first started my landscape gardening company, when I was 17, there was one other gardening company in town. That was it. They welcomed us. We could have been their competition, right? Instead of viewing it that way, they said, oh, we're so excited for you. Welcome. We're going to give you a tour of our three favorite gardens, and then we'll feed you lunch mm -hmm. in, in the last one. They welcomed us into the sisterhood and uh, wanted to share what they knew to help us be better. That's never been lost on me. Maybe there are certain trade secrets I keep a little close to the cuff and I don't share everything or we charge for our design services. There's so much of what we do, Craig, that I believe that we were put on this earth to help each other, to be in service to one another. And uh, God intended us to do that. And that's how my career began, with people being um, helpful to me. I can't say it's one uh, piece of advice. It's just to support each other in, in full. That's been a fun part of my career. I continue to mentor and guide a lot of young females, a lot of young men too, but a lot of young females seek me out for either horticultural therapy or they want to start their own business or they have a challenge with something and they want to lean on me. And I'm flattered and humbled. That, that's something that I look forward to aging into even more. Yeah, yeah. Your Would podcast... You is a wonderful opportunity for me to do same. So thank you so much for uh, recognizing that I like to share and uh, asking me to join you, Craig. I, I really enjoy uh, meeting you when you are in my garden and spending some time with you digitally as well. Thank you. This has been a blast. I've enjoyed it myself. Look forward to the future. Um, yeah, I think we do have a bright future as an industry and as a peoples if we hurry up and everybody starts paying more attention to the gardens. And what a fun thing to do. We're in that profession where everybody likes to do it. It's yeah. not like you're going to the dentist or having to pay taxes or there's a legal problem and it's a conflict. Usually if there's a challenge, there's a good solution and, a, and, and potentially an easier, a fun one. We are uniquely positioned to help people have fun for the rest of their lives. Good for us. <laughs> uh, would you like to smash a garden myth today? I would like to smash a garden myth today. I, for years, have been saying that we shouldn't use peat. I was just corrected by somebody who lives in Canada. They said they're farming it totally appropriately, and there's so much of it that it couldn't be depleted. Now, 
maybe believe where you get your news from, but I believe this person in general. I thought, huh, isn't that interesting? I, for years, have been standing adamantly and almost argumentatively on, don't ever use Pete. Shame on you. That's wrong. I don't know know enough about that to make that claim as strongly as I was. Whether I'm right or he was right maybe mattered less to me than my approach that I know best. I don't always. Maybe we learn differently, and maybe today's news is different than yesterday's news. It, it, it keeps me open to being able to learn more about our industry. What's your earliest garden memory? One of my earliest memories was being stung by a bee. What's not lost on me is now I employ the University of Minnesota Bee Squad to manage my honeybee colonies on my grow house campus to learn about honeybees and their health and wellness. We harvest the honey from those colonies and we sell the honey in the store. Full circle with, yeah, are bees bad? Or, oh, no, bees are good is, again, God has a sense of humor. So that bee connection continues to be strong for me. But potentially what more guides my career in the industry is another first memory in the gardens is we used to pluck the dandelions out of my parents' lawn and put them in a brown paper bag. They, they hired my sister and I to do their naturalistic weed eating by hand harvesting dandelions from their lawn. I would get a penny for two. Wow. So my first memories of gardening was being paid for it. So I've always been paid for my gardening. So I guess that was meant to be as well. Little entrepreneur. And now, of course, Craig, I like dandelions in my lawn and in fact have named my golden retriever dog Dandelion. That's not lost on me either that those practices of that American dream lawn maybe isn't where we should be today either, right? We sell bee lawn seed at the grow house. I have a bee lawn. I think that's a much better approach today. It takes way less inputs and is uh, an attractor all on its own for diversity. Comes full circle. Why did you decide to pursue the horticultural landscape profession? I wasn't working and I needed a job. The boy I was dating at the time his father owned a development company and they needed a water girl. I became a water girl for a development company. Before they put all the townhouses in, I would go in and water their red twig dogwood and sumac and pines and arborvitae. And we took care of uh, his father's gardens as that watering crew as well. Those gardens were only white sweet alyssum, yellow marigolds, and red salvia. And this was the CEO of the company, and that's all he had for a garden. I grew up in gardens, and I knew there was an opportunity to do this differently. As a serial entrepreneur at that young age even, I saw a need. I think that's really why I fell into the industry. I saw a need, and I thought that I could help, and I could change that. I started up my company the next year and started designing garden beds differently. In fact, designed for that CEO in his home landscape and did a much better job than just the white alyssum, yellow marigolds, and red salvia, and included a lot of horticulture and some other things along the way. I think a lot of times it's just people don't know, 
and they don't have the time to know. They, they're dependent mm. on folks like us to, to know and to help mm. them with that. Yes, I agree. When people hire a professional, they assume that you will tell them what they need to know. When I first started my company, we planted a lot of foods way back then. People didn't even know to ask for it. That was okay because they relied on me to give them what they didn't even know that they didn't have, whether that's foods or stormwater management or a regenerative approach. It's up to the professionals to help guide what that looks like. I agree with you completely, Craig. Would you share a funny garden story with us? In my early days, when I was training one of our new team members about how to take care of the garden, I think the way that most of us learn is by mistakes, right? I've had new team members, and I got to say, I probably did it too in the early days, dig out an oriental poppy thinking it was a thistle. Oh, they look the same, but not really. I've also had new team members cut off the buds of peonies before they bloomed. No, you just cut off all the buds. So I, I think we can think of it. It, it can be funny. It, what we do isn't life or death. It, it might be of the plant, but it's not us as peoples, right? It's, it's a much easier profession to be in than if you were a rocket scientist or a brain surgeon. Those professions really come with a lot of responsibility and weight. The learning of gardening isn't that. I think we can be a little lighter about, oh, how funny it is that we really don't know everything and nature informs. She's done it over centuries. How would we possibly know all, the, all of the answers today? We're going to learn over time. We can laugh at ourselves for the mistakes that we make because that's one of the best ways to learn. How has the garden held you? Mm. The garden heals me every day. Today, I am recovering from hip replacement number two, and it's going very well. But one of the things that I can do the best as my walkabout, as I'm strengthening on my cane, is going out into the garden and feeling nature wash over me. Instead of just doing laps around my kitchen island, going out and taking those laps in the garden helps sustain me. When I'm in the garden or thinking of my dad or think about the roots with Granny Franks, or maybe I just pluck a cherry tomato as I walk by. I certainly like to pet my lemon verbena and take three deep breaths to relieve the stress of the day. My garden heals me always. You probably know this, Craig, that there's, there's a natural occurring bacterium in the soil that when we touch it, releases serotonin. We really do get the happy button when we garden. And we're in, God intended us to be in the garden. We're hunters and gatherers. The garden heals us all the time. We, we just have to pause and, and identify that, oh, there was another way. I think sometimes we move too fast and we forget how she feeds us all the time. In your professional career, who's been your biggest influencer? I would say my colleagues in the Minnesota Nursery and Landscape Association. It's a really vibrant and healthy trade association here in the Midwest that I have been blessed enough to have helped shape over 15 years or so when I was really active on the board and then as president. Anytime that you put in to your volunteer world, 
or your association or the local schools or your church or your gardening community and the garden clubs or whatever, you get so much more back than what you gave. This local trade association are a collective of souls that I can lean on anytime I'm in need and, and do. Did all along and continue to have fun with them, ask professional questions of, and continue to try to influence our future with. I think gathering in community continues to be my biggest influencer. And I would say that tra trade association is really strong for me. Today, I'm building that community with my company, with the Grow House, with them collectively being the decision makers into the future. I'm trying to set up my company so that it sustains into their futures and helps heal them and the community that they serve. I think it's a collective of people. What have you recently learned about horticulture or gardening? Gosh. What would be the one thing? Doesn't have to be one. I think it's easier for me to answer that as a broad, again, we're back to the broad brush stroke, Craig, <laughs> in that everybody's got an opinion uh -huh. and everybody's voice matters. We're working on installing a food for us on our grow house campus right now. A woman that I work with reminded me that daylilies are edible. Oh yeah, I think I knew that at one point. We're going to plant some daylilies in this food forest. I, I've got a team member that knows merchandising really well. She reminded me of something else or taught me something new that I hadn't ever quite heard before. I, I can't keep all of the information myself, but can't collective voices keep bringing things forward? I'm recognizing at 62, I continue to forget so much more than I thought I knew at one point. It's really hard to keep it all in your head anymore. Guess what? I don't have to because there's so much collective voice that is passionate about something specific that can teach me or somebody else into the future. What did you learn from your garden last year that you're applying this year? You know what my garden teaches me lots of times is that I'm really stubborn and I like to control things. And even though she was trying to teach me something to not do that again, I did it again anyway, because I thought that, oh, but come on, I really like that plant right there and it should live. Why doesn't it? I'll do it again. <laughs> what I learn is I'm a very slow learner and you got to hit me upside the head sometimes and kill it three times before I go, okay, don't plant that the same way. That, that really, I, again, I have a sense of humor with my own learning curve sometimes. Lots of times I like to focus on the wins instead of the challenges. Oh, I like that color out there. Yeah, do that color again, whether it's that specific plant or not. And then I like to revisit things too. This year I have castor beans at my front door. Three years ago I had banana at my front door. But it was something bold and dramatic. My Gardens always are informing. I guess there are different things every year. It, it doesn't stay the same, does it? What plant are you in love with this week? I am in love with my patchouli this week. It's gotten really big and robust where it's sitting this year. I summer it outdoors and then I winter it indoors. I just dug it up in preparation for its transplant inside as one of the few house plants that I do have. 
Patchouli reminds me of my son. He likes that fragrance, my 33-year-old son, that people-plant connection. What, what draws me this week might be something completely different that, than what draws me next week. And today, this week, I'm engaged with my patchouli. Heidi, tell us how people may connect with you. I love for people to connect with me in a myriad of ways. Certainly, social media is one of those. I've got personal and professional pages. You can connect with me on Instagram at Lifestyle Gardens. That's my personal page. On Instagram, my professional page is Heidi's Grow House and LG. Then on Facebook, it's Heidi Highland. H-E-I-L-A-N-D is my married name. That's where you can find me on Facebook personally and professionally. It's Heidi's Grow House. There's a couple of different ways you can find me. We also have, I think, a really interesting e-blast that goes out roughly every other week that is chock full of information and connects you to our blog or our YouTube channel. And how about your website? Oh, good. Thank you. So Bloom on MN. Sounded cute as heck when I came up with it, but boy, it's hard to enunciate. Bloom on Minnesota.com is how you find us. It's full of all sorts of wonderful information. We got online buying going, Shopify during COVID, and we've paused it for a minute. But we will get that up and running again, probably this winter for next spring's sales for sales of 2024 will go online again. I don't know about you, Craig, but for me, this digital age is phenomenal. But one of the reasons I love our industry is because it's all about the people-plant connection. And I would much rather do most of this in person. This has been episode 131, Water, Food, Healing. The Transformative Power of Gardening with Heidi Howland. Thank you, Heidi. You're awesome. The goal is that every episode is valuable and well worth your time. Please generously share the Garden Question podcast with your friends, relatives, and neighbors. Check out our website, thegardenquestion.com, for links, resources, and where you can listen to every episode again and again. You will not want to miss a weekly episode, so please subscribe to the Garden Question podcast with Craig McManus on your favorite listening app. Keep on designing, building, and growing a smarter garden that works.